Well, if you have your Bible, you can make your way to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy, if you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles, begins on page 991. Uh, as you heard Steve mention this morning, we are today kicking off uh, a new series that will be in between now and Easter Sunday, studying these books of 1 and 2 Timothy. Uh, and it's been really encouraging to see how many of us uh, are already signed up to be part of a men's or women's Bible study uh, this spring. Uh, those signups have been going on for now a couple weeks, and there's a lot of us in the church that are going to be in one of those, uh, which is hugely encouraging. And he's not in here right now, but a uh, huge thanks to Pastor John for all the work he put into putting uh, our study guide together. If you didn't pick one up and you'd like to, there should be some left on the welcome desk, and they are substantial. They are uh, like 50 pages front and back. Uh, with lots of great questions, as well as the text in there that you can mark up for yourself. Um, and John did a great job putting that together for us. Before we go into uh, the text this morning, uh, take a moment, if you have it, hopefully you do, and look at the front of your uh, worship guide, your, your, your bulletin. When the Apostle Paul uh, is depicted on stained, on stained glass or on some kind of iconography, he's always pictured or almost always pictured with both of his hands full. So in one hand, and you'll see this in that picture, in one hand he holds a book or a scroll. And this is symbolic for all of his writings and all of his contributions to the New Testament. Of the 27 books in the New Testament, just under half of those, which account for about a quarter of the total text, are attributed to Paul. And then in his other hand, you'll notice this, Paul holds a sword. And this is symbolic of his martyr's death. Paul lost his life reportedly by beheading uh, under the, the reign of Emperor Nero in Rome sometime around 68 AD, the late 60s AD. And if you've been around the church for any period of time, if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, you probably know this. He's known for these two things. He wrote and he suffered. He wrote and he suffered. After this radical conversion experience on the road to Damascus, he became the church's foremost pioneer missionary across the first century Mediterranean world. And as he did that, he addressed specific errors and articulated truths and defended the faith. He, he has contributed to the Christian faith more than maybe any one person apart from Jesus himself. But before he was ever recognized as a saint, before he was ever etched into glass, Paul was a man. Paul was a man. He was a man fighting in his own life to keep the faith. He was a man who labored to endure with genuine love. He was a man who poured out his life for other people and became to them a spiritual father, a friend, a pastor. And perhaps nowhere do we get a better glimpse of this pastoral heart of Paul than in three New Testament books known as the pastoral epistles. So along with Titus, 1 and 2 Timothy are called pastoral epistles really for two reasons. One is because Paul in them lays out a lot of wisdom for pastoral leadership in the local church. He gives lots of instructions about how pastors and elders are to lead in a local church. But number two is because in the letters themselves, Paul is pastoring the recipient. We'll read here in a moment, Paul is writing these letters to his beloved child in the faith named Timothy. And he offers guidance and he offers challenge and he offers encouragement all of which flow from this unmistakable posture of deep personal concern and love. And so in this series, we're going to be called not only to display external evidences of a gospel-shaped life, but by Paul's own example, 
We're going to be called, I hope, I pray, to love others, to endure, to engage with other people from a gospel-shaped heart. And yes, the image there on the front cover that you see is the outline of a human heart. Uh, If you couldn't see that, it's because you don't have one. (laughs) Or maybe because I'm not known for being a good artist. It's probably that, actually, instead. But either way, uh, this is the new series we're beginning in the book of 1 and 2 Timothy. We kick off with 1 Timothy today. Uh, So I invite you now to listen uh, with open ears to this book that we love. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of, Jesus Christ, of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons, per- persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he has judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Verse 18, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting these, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. And this is God's word. Let me pray for us. Living God, Help us to hear your holy word with open hearts so that we may truly understand an understanding that we may believe and believing that we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and your glory in all that we do. Through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen. In Acts chapter 16, uh, we learn 
that Paul met Timothy during his second missionary journey. Timothy became to Paul then a spiritual son, a co-laborer with Paul. And we read here in verse 18 that there were some prophecies that were made about Timothy. In other words, he was identified early on from that moment as having the gifts and the calling to be a leader in Jesus' church. And so eventually a group of elders, we find out elsewhere, laid their hands on him and ordained him for that work. And ultimately, Timothy found himself leading and pastoring in this large metropolitan city of Ephesus in what is now modern-day Turkey. As best that we can tell, this letter was written sometime in the mid-60s A.D., about 15 years or so after that initial meeting between Paul and Timothy. There's a long historical tradition in the church that after Paul was imprisoned the first time in Rome, which is how the book of Acts ends. The book of Acts ends and Paul is under house arrest. He's, under, he's imprisoned in or near the city of Rome. But the tradition is that after that, he was released and he went on proclaiming the gospel around the Mediterranean. And then sometime again, around 67 or 68 AD, under the reign of Nero, he was imprisoned again, and during that imprisonment was martyred for his faith. So these letters, 1 and 2 Timothy, were written in between those stints in prison. 1 Timothy, as you'll hear in the weeks to come, 1 Timothy is a more public letter. He, he responds to Timothy's situation and Timothy's circumstances there in Ephesus. 2 Timothy is even more personal. It, it reads a lot more like a farewell letter to a close friend. But in both of these letters, the love and the care that Paul has for Timothy is everywhere evident. Timothy, as he receives this letter, is still relatively young, somewhere between 35 and 40. He's prone, we'll find out, to be timid. He needs affirmation. He needs encouragement. He has physical ailments. He has some kind of stomach issue that's plaguing him. So though Paul does, through this letter, give instruction to the broader church, what we see is here is that he is doing it through the fatherly affection that he has specifically for Timothy. And a key summary line of all this will come in chapter 4. Paul writes there to Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. And Paul says, persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. So though we won't get to that line for another couple weeks, chapter 1 is actually just a longer version of the same charge. And Paul here begins his letter by calling for what I'm going to say is gospel-shaped integrity. Gospel-shaped integrity. And the two main components of it, and the things that we'll spend the rest of our time together this morning talking about, are the integrity of the teaching and the integrity of your life. The integrity of the teaching and the integrity of your life. So first, the integrity of the teaching. You, you perhaps heard it, felt it when, we read it when we read it a few moments ago. There's an urgency to Paul's words here. Common feature of his letters is to begin by thanking God for the recipients of it. But here he skips over that. Why does he skip that? Well, because some in the church at Ephesus have been teaching a different doctrine, and Paul is saying to Timothy, you got to get in there and do something about this. you got to respond. Throughout these letters, there will be references to the truth, the faith, the sound doctrine. There's a definite article in front of these words that show up in the letter. And what that indicates is that there is already at this point in time in history, there already is an established doctrine, an established set of beliefs that has become the standard by which all other teaching should be tested. 
And specifically, that is verse 11. The gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. In other words, it's the teaching of Jesus himself entrusted to the apostles and then faithfully passed on from there. What kind of false teaching then is happening in, in Ephesus? We, we don't really know exactly the specifics of it, but it has something to do with myths and with genealogies. So perhaps taking these obscure texts or these lists of families from the Old Testament and trying to extrapolate way more out of them than the, than the author, than the original writing ever intended. Something like that actually happened a couple decades ago uh, here in the Protestant church, at least in North America, with a book that was released called The Prayer of Jabez. Anybody remember this book? Anybody in the church around that time, a couple decades ago? The Prayer of Jabez, this otherwise unknown character in 1 Chronicles 4. And a few years ago, those two verses, and there are only two verses that describe one instance of his life, became the basis of this book and really this movement that became this huge fad thing that happened for a couple years. And people read those verses not as descriptive, not as of something that happened, but they read it as prescriptive, believing that if they, like Jabez, prayed for prosperity, that God would enlarge the territories, enlarge their borders, that God would be obligated to answer them. And that's a myth. And that's not true. But we do this. This has happened in the entire history of the church. We take these obscure texts in the Old Testament, apparently genealogies too, and we extrapolate them to try to make them mean something more than they ever were intended to mean. The other thing we know about this false teaching is that it misused and misapplied the law. The Old Testament law given by God to Moses. And there's so much more that we could say about this than we have time for this morning. Several years ago, we studied Paul's letter to the Galatians. And in that series, we actually devoted an entire sermon to the law, um, to its purposes, to the right and wrong ways to understand the law in light of Jesus' fulfilling and finished work. And so if helpful after today, let us know, let me know. We'll happily send you uh, the, the, the manuscript or the audio for that sermon so you can do a little bit deeper dive. But for this morning, I'll just summarize it by saying this. The law is good. The law is good. And the unity between the morality of the Old Testament law and the morality of the gospel is incredible. In verses 8 through 11 here, Paul is basically unpacking the second half of the Ten Commandments. So he says, don't strike your father and mother because the, the, fourth, the fifth commandment, fourth commandment is that you're supposed to honor them. He says, don't murder, which is one of the commandments. Don't commit adultery is another commandment. So Paul says here, uphold God's design for sex in a marriage between one husband and one wife. And so sexual immorality, as he points out, or homosexuality, those would be outside of that good design of God. Don't steal is another commandment. And so Paul says, especially don't steal people by enslaving them. Don't bear false witness is another commandment. So Paul says, liars and perjurers. So Paul here is taking that second half of the, of the Ten Commandments and he's upholding the morality of them. And Jesus does the same thing with the law in the Sermon on the Mount. He upholds the, mor the morality of the law. He even increases the bar for the moral calling of the people of God. However, for Christians, the law, keeping the law, is not the basis of our standing with God. And in fact, it's the law that reveals our inability to ever do so. It's the law that actually leads us to our need for a savior that we cannot keep this perfect standard 
ourselves. And so we as Christians rejoice that we trust in Jesus' work, his keeping the law, his perfect life, his death, his resurrection, not our own work. There are all kinds of ways for false teachers to use the law in ways that will corrupt this good news of the gospel of Jesus. And they'll, they'll use the law to teach as if the death and resurrection of Jesus had no effect. But as Christians, our entire lives owe existence to the fact that it had every effect that Jesus died and rose again and that the law is not the basis of our standing with God anymore. Whatever the specifics of these teachings, Paul's biggest problem with the false teachings is what they lead to. False teaching, he says, leads to speculations and swerving, but the true gospel leads to love. Verse five, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So let me ask you this morning, church, is the gospel leading you to love? Is the gospel leading you to love? Is what you are reading and learning and studying and listening to leading you to actually put love into practice? Or is it instead leading you into speculation, what Paul calls vain discussion here in this text? Many of us have been Christians for a substantial period of time. And what can happen over time, whether we're aware of this or not, is that we become consumers of Christian content. Books and articles and podcasts and conferences, nothing inherently wrong with any of that. In fact, never in the history of the church has there been so much opportunity, so much access to fantastic resources easily and cheaply. But the integrity of the gospel means that it will lead us to love. Love from a pure heart, Paul says, a heart that is increasingly growing in holiness rather than immersed in sinful desires. Love from a good conscience, one that is increasingly discerning between what's right and what's wrong rather than being seared. A conscience that's been calloused or seared with guilt. And love from a sincere faith, one that is increasingly authentic rather than full of pretense and hypocrisy. The true gospel will transform like this. And so, if instead you find yourself merely consuming information, endlessly speculating, leading to vain discussion, stop and ask yourself why. Stop and ask yourself why. The stewardship from God, the aim of true teaching of the gospel is love. And this is why Paul is so insistent on the integrity of the teaching. A pastoral heart protects a pastoral heart protects. It protects people from believing a false gospel. It protects people from the vanity and futility that that false gospel leads to. It protects people from spiritual bankruptcy, where you deceive yourself into thinking that you're, that you're believing and that you're passing along truth, when in reality, you have, as he says in verse 7, no idea about what you are saying or about the things that you're making confident assertions about. The integrity of the teaching matters because the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only power to save, the only power to transform, the only power to give us gospel-shaped hearts that issue forth in love. And Paul knows that more than anyone because of his own story, which leads to the second component of, the gospel, of gospel-shaped integrity, and that's the integrity of your life. The integrity of your life. Verses 12 through 17 are immensely personal words from Paul. And he's laying it out there 
because he wants Timothy to remember. He wants the church at Ephesus to know, to see, this is what the true gospel does. False teachings, false gospels are useless to bring about real transformation and real love in real life. But Paul says, look at my life. Look at my life. Not because I'm so amazing. Look at my life precisely for the opposite reason, because I was so far gone. Because I was so wicked and so wretched. Paul was a blasphemer. He dishonored the name of God by rejecting Jesus. Paul was a persecutor. He imprisoned Christians. He was a party and gave approval to their murder. Paul was an insolent opponent. He found satisfaction in insulting and humiliating followers of Jesus Christ. But Paul received mercy. The grace of God overflowed even for him. This is the gospel. This is the cardinal truth of the gospel, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Not those who think they are healthy, but the sick, the ones who know they are sick. Not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are unrighteous. He came into the world, as we read earlier, not to condemn, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And so perhaps you heard this when we read this text of 1 Timothy. There's an extra word in the greeting of this letter. It's Paul's custom to begin his letters with the words grace and peace. But at the beginning of this letter, it's grace and mercy and peace. A pastoral heart is a merciful heart because it never forgets its own need for mercy. A pastoral heart is a patient heart because as Paul writes here in verse 16, he has received a perfect patience from Jesus Christ himself. And so Paul is saying, if ever you are inclined to doubt the power of God to save sinners, I beg you, look at my life. If ever someone was too far gone, it was me. If ever there was a worst of sinners, you're looking at him. I am he. An author and pastor named John Stott puts it this way. He says, Paul was so vividly aware of his own sins that he could not conceive anybody could be worse. And this, Stott says, is the language of every sinner whose conscience has been awakened and disturbed by the Holy Spirit. Don't miss that. This is not only an important realization for the Apostle Paul. This is an important realization for all Christians who desire to live lives of integrity. Paul has just said, we heard it, some really harsh words for false teachers. And he's pointed out the sins of who he calls lawless and disobedient people. But he can't well do that without immediately being reminded of his own story and his own life. We have a tendency as Christians to be either self-righteous or self-pitied. Self-righteous people will boldly assert the sins of others, but they will ignore or they will forget their own need for mercy. Self-pitied people know their need for mercy. They They know it well, but they shrink back then from calling sin, sin. Why? Because they forget they really have received mercy in Christ. They forget that other people really can, as far gone as it might seem they are, receive mercy in Christ. They forget that the true gospel is precisely this. Christians are mercy people. We know our own need for mercy. And then seeing the mercy that we've received from Jesus, we have the courage to speak up and we have the courage to step into people's lives. 
And I'm sure that your experience will attest to this as mine does. Gospel astonishment and gospel boldness go hand in hand. They go hand in hand. In other words, those who are most astonished over and over again by the mercy that they have received are also the most emboldened to proclaim and to display mercy to other people. Not self-righteously, not self-pitied, but truly, as the phrase goes, beggars showing other beggars where to find the bread. Paul never got over the gospel. He never got over it. It never ceased to amaze him that the work of Christ could count for him and did count for him. And the result of that was a lifetime of endurance. The result of that was a lifetime of love that flowed from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So what about us? What about you? Have you gotten over the gospel? Has it ceased to astonish you? I know that in the seven years of the life of our church together, I've been there many times. But even as I call myself to the same thing this morning, I beg you, may we never get over the gospel. May we never as a church move past it or think that we're somehow supposed to. The moment that we do is the moment that we stop sharing it with other people with any kind of boldness or zeal. The moment that we do is the moment that we start to become consumers of content rather than people who actually love. A life of gospel-shaped integrity is an astonished, emboldened life. It is a life that pours out with mercy and patience, and it can do no other because it is a life that owes its entire existence to the mercy and the patience of God. In the Christian life, we are prone to get over things that we are never meant to get over. There's nothing, and I'm sure you're aware of this, there's nothing revolutionary or novel about the points that Paul makes here in this letter. The gospel calls us to integrity of teaching, and the gospel calls us to integrity of life. That is, I'm sure, not news to the vast majority of you in this room. But these are the very things that you and I will be tempted to move past or think we're supposed to move past. There's a third thing that we'll be tempted to move past, and it's the church. And so Paul closes this first chapter with some really jolting words about two men, Hymenaeus and Alexander. And they are evidently two of the false teachers who have shipwrecked their faith. Paul writes that he has then handed them over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. It's a semi-technical way of describing what we would call excommunication or removing someone from the church. Ultimately, that's done for the offending party's own good. So Paul's hope is that it will lead Hymenaeus and Alexander to wake up, to repent of their error, to return to the churches. He's wanting them to learn not to blaspheme with the hope that they would come back. To our modern ears, to our modern sensibilities, this sounds harsh and this sounds unkind which is why it is so important to see the immediate context of Paul's integrity and how a life of love and mercy and patience is still, for Paul and in Paul's mind, compatible with things like excommunication. But think about this this morning. Think about what the whole concept of excommunication implies. It assumes that participation in the church of Jesus Christ is a gift. It assumes that being part of the church of Jesus Christ is a privilege, a gift without equal. 
If being part of the church isn't a big deal, then who cares about being removed from it? And as N.T. Wright puts it, Paul saw the fellowship of the church as the place above all where the power of God was active to heal, to guide, to lead and direct individual Christians. To forbid people access to it was therefore tantamount to sending them away into outer darkness. So men and women, on this seventh anniversary of Liberty Church, let us examine ourselves. Do we take the church for granted? Do we take for granted not only the the content of the gospel, the teaching of the gospel, but do we take for granted the lives around us that have been and are being and will be shaped by that gospel? Do you really see the church of Jesus Christ as a gift without equal? And if you would be part of this local church or any local church, I can promise you this. We will let each other down. We will offend each other. We will disappoint one another. And we will still be infinitely better off in this community of mercy-dependent sinners than we ever would be outside of it. If I didn't believe that, I would not still be standing here after seven years, I promise you. I would not not be here if I did not believe that. So Liberty Church, may we never get over the gospel. May we believe and live with integrity. Hold fast to the sincere faith from a good conscience and love from a pure heart. May the mercy of God, which has overflowed for us in Jesus Christ, likewise overflow from us. And may we be people who are ever and always shaped by the gospel. Amen. We pray for us. We praise you, our Father, for making your divine truth real to us in Jesus Christ. And we ask that what we do and how we live and the way that we love would be increasingly a worthy response. You have loved us with a love that surpasses knowledge. You have shown us mercy that surpasses knowledge. You've been patient with us in the same way. And so in our integrity, may we likewise be people of mercy and patience and love for one another. I pray this in your name. Amen.